You can open your Bibles to Psalm 37, and I'm doing a four-part series in, in Psalm 37. It's quite a long psalm, so I'm, and I'm going to break, up, break it up in four parts. We've already uh, looked at uh, chapter, we looked at the first 11 verses a, a few weeks ago. It's on the website if you need to listen to that. And we're going to be examining uh, today, this morning, verses 12 through 20. But let me read the entire psalm for you uh, before we... Uh, before we uh, where we dive into our text today. Psalm 37 of David. This is, by the way, a, uh, it's written uh, according to the, in, in the order of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, every two verses starts with uh, the, one, the, the, the consecutive or the corresponding Hebrew alphabet from from A to Z, so to speak. And so uh, first, the first two verses of Psalm 37 in the Hebrew, both uh, verses begin with Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alph- alphabet. Verses 3 through 4 begin with the next uh, he- Hebrew, uh, Hebrew uh, letter in the alphabet, Baith. Uh, verses 5 through 6, gem- Gemels. Uh, verse 7, Daleth. Verse 8 and 9, Haith. Uh, 10 and 11, Avav, Zion, Haith. Some of your translations have that, so this is um, uh, written in a poetic way to kind of give you the a, 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 the ABCs of, um, of, of how to live a full and abundant life. So having said that, let me read that for you. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward doers of unrighteousness, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in Yahweh and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Yahweh. Trust in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Be still in Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who carries out schemes of wickedness. Cease from anger and forsake wrath, do not fret, it leads only to evil doing, for evildoers will be cut off. But those who hope for Yahweh, they will inherit the land. In a little while, the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully at his place, and he will not be there, but the lowly will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked schemes against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of the many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but Yahweh sustains the righteous. Yahweh knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil. In the days of famine they will be satisfied but the wicked will perish and the enemies of Yahweh will be like the glory of the pastures they vanish and smoke they vanish away the wicked borrows and does not pay back but the righteous is gracious and gives those blessed by him will inherit the land but those cursed by him will be cut off the footsteps of a man are established by Yahweh and he delights in his way when he falls he will not be hurled headlong because Yahweh is the one who sustains his hand I was young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging bread. 
All day long he is gracious and lends, and his seed is a blessing. Depart from evil and do good, so you will dwell forever. For Yahweh loves justice and will not forsake his holy ones. They are kept forever. But the seed of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to put him to death. Yahweh will not forsake him in his hand. He will not condemn him when he is judged. Hope for Yahweh and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a luxurious tree in his native soil. Then he passed away, and behold, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Observe the blameless man, and behold the upright. For the man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. He is their strength in time of distress. Yahweh helps them and protects them. He protects them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. German philosopher Wolfgang Goethe once wrote, A man sees in the world what he carries in his heart. What this quote is saying is that we just don't live our lives dealing with events and circumstances that come at us in an objective manner. Rather, we deal with those things with a particular perspective. We're always interpreting everything we experience in life. And oftentimes, how we interpret our experiences determines the quality of life we live. In other words, perspective is, is powerful. Now, two people can experience the exact same set of circumstances, and one person can come out of the same situation all the better for it, while the other person can come out worse, all because they interpreted the situation with different perspectives. Perspective is powerful. See, I'm always, I'm always interpreting the experiences for my five-year-old. Something significant will happen to him at, at school, and, and sometimes he, he doesn't know just how exactly how he should feel about it. Because he doesn't know how to interpret what happened to him. So I, I interpret the ordeal he went through and then tell him at the end, listen, based on what happened to you, this is how you should feel about it. It's not as important as you think, so don't worry about it. Or I'll say something like, this is really important and you did a great job, so you should feel you should really be satisfied about you, what you did. You should be excited about the outcome of your, your decisions. Or I'll say something like, this was wrong, or this was sinful, Paul. Uh, you shouldn't be saying this or doing this with your friend. A week ago, he, out of the blue in my car, he just said he shared about experience in his little game club that he went to for a while, and he said, I did something, and everybody laughed at me. And he didn't know how to interpret it. Interpret what happened to him. And I explained to him, it's probably something you did really cute and you don't want to take it personal. And they, were, they weren't laughing at you, they were laughing with you. And he felt better about that. And just like a, a parent to a child, our Heavenly Father in Scripture over and over is, presents to his children a biblical worldview, a biblical perspective on how to interpret everything that comes at us. 
As we grow in the knowledge of the, of the Bible, Scripture tears down our old carnal worldview. Scripture replaces it with a new biblical perspective when dealing with the issues of life. But to be clear, this, this biblical perspective is not just one of many. It's not a subjective viewpoint. The, the biblical perspective that we're given in the Bible is the definitive way of how things exactly are. All other perspectives are erroneous and mistaken. See, when God saved me from my sin 22 years ago, nothing changed and everything changed. You see, my life circumstances didn't change when I became a believer. A suitcase full of $100 bills didn't drop out of the sky on my doorstep. I didn't become smarter. Traffic didn't magically clear up every time I got on the freeway. The, the people in my office weren't nicer to me or any kinder to me. In that sense, nothing changed when I became a Christian. But on, on the other hand, everything changed because the first, for the first time in my life, I began to see the world as God sees the world. I was given the eyes to see the true reality of life. My circumstances didn't change, but my perception about life and the world changed because I was given a true perspective about life, and because of that, I, I, I began to make better decisions than I did when I saw the world through the lens of my godless, self-centered perspective. Not every decision was a good decision. I didn't become sinless overnight. Even today, I still have a lot of things I need to work on, but on the whole, my batting average went from like 25 to 350, 350 certainly is in a thousand, but that 350 has made all the difference in the world for my life today. And so in today's verses, David wants to give us an eternal perspective. He wants us to give, he wants to give us, he wants to build for us an, an eternal perspective on how we need to live life. We're in part two of a four-part series I've titled how to live a full and abundant life, all from Psalm 37. Psalm 37 ties a, a box load of dynamite to the way we used to think about living an abundant life, and he demolishes the entire edifice. The emphasis of this psalm is that the true fullness of life is not experienced the way we naturally expect or the way we've been taught growing up. In other words, it's not found in manipulating your circumstances. You can't get this kind of life by controlling everybody around you. No, a, a true and abundant life is, 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 not about, is not about violently silencing those who threaten your ambitions. See, the last time we were in Psalm 37, David began this psalm by telling us that we need to stop chasing success and instead... We, are, we need to be faithful men and women of God. Be faithful, David exhorted us. And faithfulness isn't complicated. Faithfulness isn't flashy. Being faithful is not going to make you popular. Being faithful is actually, it's kind of like driving your car to work every morning. It requires you to keep your eyes on the road, to stay focused on God, to keep your eyes focused on always pleasing and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let your enemies distract you, David said. Don't desire their lifestyle. Don't let them get you so angry and worked up. Being faithful is, 
It's also like putting on your seatbelt each and every time you drive your car. That's just ordinary stuff. It's not like a race car where you, you go from zero to 60 in, 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 five se in four seconds. No, putting on your seatbelt every time, is, it's ordinary. And so David said, be faithful to God in the ordinary matters of life. Read your Bibles. Come to church. Love your wife. Share the gospel. And then David said, wait for God. You see, faithfulness is, is patiently waiting on God's timing. Don't honk at the horn at the student driver in front of you for driving too slow. A few days ago, the guy in front of me was, wasn't driving too well. He had a little sticker, student driver. And I was tempted to honk at, this, at the guy, and then I, re, I was reminded of this sermon. I didn't honk. Let's put it into practice. And so David says, wait on God. Be faithful and let God worry about the outcome of your faithfulness. You see, Psalm 37 wants us to deconstruct our motives for living. The psalm wants us to liberate our ambitions from the shackles of carnality. The first 11 verses of Psalm 37 dealt with the general direction of our lives. Don't pr pursue success. Pursue faithfulness. Now, today, in verses 12 through 20, David shifts gears and he focuses on the power of perspective. The power of perspective. Replace your perspective on life that is temporary, that, that is just about the here and the now. Stop thinking about life with respect to just what is in front of you today, and maybe you have your five-year goal and your 10-year goal, and at most you, you're, you're planning for your retirement. No, that's, that's a temporal perspective. Instead, replace it with an eternal perspective that, that looks at life from God's vantage point. You stop living for today and, and put all your bags in an eternal basket. Stop thinking about the earth so much and start thinking about heaven. Stop organizing your life around your own personal ambitions and comforts and start realizing that your life is not your own. See, if you're a follower of Christ, your, your life is actually a gift that you will present to God on Judgment Day and you will say, Father, this is the life I live for you. And so do you, want to do you want to live a full and abundant life? Do you want to live a life that matters to God, that is valuable to God? David says establish an eternal mindset. Establish an eternal perspective. And so in light of the main point of these verses, verses 12 through 20, I submit for your consideration two points to you this morning. Two points that we will examine. Number one, found in verses 12 through 15, the recompense for a temporary perspective is severe. The recompense for a temporary perspective is severe. And then in verses 16 through 20, the reward for an eternal perspective is satisfaction. The reward for an eternal perspective is satisfaction. Let's look at verses 12 through 15, the recompense for a temporary perspective is severe. David writes in verses 12 through 15, The wicked schemes against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart 
and their bows will be broken. The human race will pay severely for refusing to establish an eternal perspective about their lives. You see, the Bible divides humanity into two main groups of people. There are those who are in Adam, and then there are those who are in Christ. And ever since the day of the fall, there has been this, this, this fight, this, this, this conflict between these two races of people. And this is how God describes it in Genesis 3.15. When, when God sent, said to eight, Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. This verse is saying that there will be a cosmic battle between Satan and those who belong to him versus God and his chosen people. See, what marks those in Adam, described in verse 12 as the wicked, is their hostility toward the people of God and their refusal to to accept an eternal mindset about life. They mistakenly believe that their lives on earth are all that they have. And so they put all their chips on this earthly life, deluded into thinking they will never be held accountable for their choices, their decisions, and their actions. The wicked's antagonism toward God's people, referred to as the righteous in verse 12, is, is simply this manifestation of the cosmic battle that began at the fall of man. Look at verse 1, on verse 12. Uh, David says, the wicked schemes against the righteous. Again, the, the righteous is a reference specifically to the worship of Yahweh. Whenever God describes uh, his people in, in the Psalms, he, he uses um, words not to kind of describe things kind of exactly as they are. He, he, look, look, he calls the people righteous. Uh, he calls the people upright in conduct. Uh, he, he says, uh, at verse 18, uh, he knows the day of the blameless. He, he uses the, these words to describe his people in, in the best possible light. He says, this is who you are on, on your best days. And he graciously refers to us in these really high, exalting kind of language. And so, uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 12, um, the, 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 it says that the, the, the wicked schemes against the righteous. The wicked don't just scheme against everybody. No, their guns are just toward us only, just believers. We're the only ones with the bullseye on our foreheads. Because this is just, the things that we're going through, this is, this is just part of the, well, the spiritual warfare we're, we're destined to endure. We're not to, we're not to take this, this personal, because it's simply part of the cosmic war that began at the fall and that ends at the return of Christ. And so, yes, they're against us uh, alone. Yes, we're singled out in this, in this scheming, but it's because we're part of this, this cosmic war. And the word that David uses in verse 12, he uses the word uh, schemes, and, and this Hebrew word, the first time it is used, it is used in Genesis 11, when the world built the Tower of Babel in an attempt to overthrow God. And this spiritual coup has never stopped since that day. And so we are to interpret hostility toward us in these sweeping themes of salvation history. 
we must be sober-minded about what the nature of our lives will be. See, when all your co-workers turn against you for your faith, realize what's happening to you from a biblical worldview. The Bible never tries to sugarcoat what life will be like for us. And while we're not supposed to be paranoid about what faces us, while we're not supposed to be fleeing blue states for red states, we're also, on the other hand, not supposed to be naive about the nature of this cosmic war we are fighting. Why does the world scheme against the righteous, verse 12, as verse 12 says? Well, it's because, look what it says. They, 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 they gnash at him with his teeth. The wicked gnashes at him with his teeth. This is a picture of burning anger. The wicked hate the church with this intense burning anger because those in Adam hate those in Christ. They hate us because they hate our Savior. You see, the same hatred that nailed Jesus to the cross is the hatred that David is talking about here. It is the same hatred that you and I experience when unbelievers attack us for the gospel. Listen to John 15, 18 through 20. Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it hated it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. You see, our righteous lives convict unbelievers of their sin. The light of our lives exposes the world's deeds done in darkness. Jesus said in John 3, 19 and 20, And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. The wicked scheme against the righteous because they hate us, and because they do not have this eternal mindset. They do not see beyond this lifetime to the day of reckoning that is coming for them. They don't realize how little of a chance they stand against the Lord God Almighty. And so what is the response to the schemes of the world against his chosen people? Look at verse, four, look at verse 13. The Lord laughs at him. The Hebrew word used in verse 13 for Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai. And this is a particular Hebrew word for God, emphasizing God's sovereign power and his absolute lordship. Adonai has the final word in every matter of life. There is no atom, there is no molecule outside of Adonai's control. R.C. Sproul wrote this, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. See, God laughs at them. And this, this laughter in verse 13 is an expression of God's total lack of fear. God is amused at these people building this Tower of Babel trying to reach heaven. He, he, he's, he's, he's totally... Uh, not off guard, there's no apprehension, there's no worry, there's no uh, uh, anxiety. You see, sometimes my, my five-year-old and their two-year-old, 
they'll go, and they'll, they'll come after me. And they'll attack me with all their strength, with all their fury. And I laugh because partly it's so cute, and it's partly because I have zero fear that they can hurt me in any way. And God is expressing his power and his greatness and his sovereignty when he laughs at the wicked who scheme against God's people. Verse, verse 13 echoes a Psalm 2. Go to Psalm 2 real quick. And David in, in Psalm 2, he says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointing, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord mocks them. And he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. See, God's response to the world's scheming against his people is the Lord Jesus Christ. God laughs because, uh, look at verse 13, for he sees that his day is coming. God knows the, the, the beginning and the end. The wicked can't see that day. They refuse to see beyond their own lives. But God sees the end. That day is coming. And then in verses 14 and 15, David elaborates on verses 12 and 13. Verse 14, the wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow. In other words, they're scheming, they're planning against God's people. It's sophisticated. They have their short-range weapons, the sword. They have their long-range weapons, the bow. They've planned for every contingency. And so too poor to hire defenders, too afflicted to defend ourselves, and too upright to engage in violence, the wicked pounce because they see us as easy prey. We're easy to attack. We're easy to go after. They don't attack Muslims here in this country. No, they attack, they attack Christians because they know what kind of people we are. But God says, you know their schemes, their plans, look at verse 15, it's going to backfire. It's going to backfire. Their sword will enter their own heart. Their bows will be broken. See, they're, the wicked, they're too short-sighted to see the end. They, they will not establish this eternal perspective about life. And because they lack foresight into the future, they don't see that their plan will backfire point by point. The sword they have drawn in verse 14 will enter their own heart in verse 15. The, the bow that they bent in verse 14 will be broken in verse 15. Point by point counter. Total reversal. Perfect justice is coming. Do you, do you see that day? See, when the wicked plan evil against us, they're only planning to destroy themselves. Everything is reversed in the end. And knowing this, this end reality does a couple of things. It gives us confidence. It gives us peace. It gives us assurance. But it also gives us pity for our enemies. When we 
stumble upon their scheming against us, when we stumble upon their plans, we see the total reversal. We see, instead of them destroying us, we see ultimately they're planning to destroy themselves. And this gives us compassion for them. Getting angry at our enemies is a complete waste of time and energy. There is nothing we could ever do to, put the, to do to them that God won't perfectly do in the end. See, this is, this, this is the kind of important information an internal perspective gives you. Your plans without God will backfire. Knowing that God's day is coming changes your entire perspective about how you should live your life. Once you understand that a day of judgment is really coming for your sin, you will repent. Once you realize how much a holy God hates your sinfulness and your transgression, you will turn to Christ. See, the knowing the final day gives you an eternal perspective. And this eternal perspective, in verses 16 through 20, David says, gives God's people contentment. Establishing an eternal perspective gives us contentment. And this is the contentment that David will focus on going forward in these verses. Point number two, the reward for an eternal perspective is satisfaction. An eternal perspective, an an eternal mindset established gives you a present-day contentment. See, everybody wants contentment, but only a few find it. Most, most of us, we're, we're not chasing more degrees and higher salaries and bigger houses in and of themselves. No, we're chasing the contentment we think that comes with all that stuff. And we say to ourselves, okay, when I make this amount of money or when I uh, achieve this kind of success, then I will be content. And David says, That kind of thinking is not true. That will never happen. You will never receive inward contentment by the pursuit of earthly riches and creaturely comforts. Listen to what David says in verse 16. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. David gives us a biblical definition of contentment here. See, when you have righteousness, even a little is better than the abundance of the many wicked. You add up all the abundance of riches that all the wicked have, right? The abundance of many wicked, it says. You add all that up, it's still not as valuable as having righteousness accompanied with a little. In other words, more Christ-likeness is better than more money. You will be more content growing spiritually than you will be growing financially. More holiness is better than more sin. Denying your flesh, mortifying your sinful desires will give you more inward contentment than satisfying your fleshly desires. More church is better than more degrees. Serving your church will give you more contentment inside of you than graduate school and one more certification. More prayer is better than Netflix, more Netflix shows. You will be more content praying than you will be binge-watching your favorite new series. 
More of God is better than more of the world. More of God will give you more inward satisfaction and contentment than more of the world. You see, when you have the righteousness of Jesus imputed to your, to your account, when you have a practical righteousness as the Spirit indwells you and sanctifies you progressively, you have everything you need for your heart to be truly content. God gives you a little tiny apartment. It gives you enough to eat for the day. Nothing more than that, friends, will give you more contentment than you should already have overflowing in your heart. And while, I just, and, while I, and while what I just said is absolutely true according to God's Word, living out that truth is harder to do because everyone around us tries to convince you otherwise. Even many Christians don't seem to believe that Jesus is enough. And they try to convince you through their lifestyles and weekly activities that contentment in Christ alone is not enough. I don't understand why so many of you are working so hard. For what? How much money do you need? How nice of a, how nice of a house do you need to have? You keep telling yourself, no, 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 trust me, I, once, I, once I get this house, once I, I, I get this kind of a salary level, I'll be content. No, listen to David. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. See, if you believe in the gospel, if you love your Bible, if you pray, if you love your church, you just need a little apartment, a loaf of bread, a can of beans, a gallon of water, and you will have more inward contentment than you will ever need in life. Nothing more than that can give you a, a modicum more of contentment. Listen to Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take we cannot take anything out of either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. He says, if you have godliness, you have everything. If you have godliness, you have everything. And if you have godliness and you have some food and you have a roof over your head, that's all you need to satisfy your heart. Paul says, godliness is the gain that is great. Nothing more is necessary. So why do the righteous have contentment, though? Why do the righteous have contentment? Well, because they have God, who is the eternal wellspring of all contentment and satisfaction, verses 17 through 19. David said as much back in verse 4. Remember what he, what he said in verse 4? Delight yourself in Yahweh, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In verse 17, David begins this exposition on how, the, how God satisfies the righteous by how he will punish the wicked. He says in verse 17, for the arms of the wicked will be broken. The ability of the wicked to generate wealth will be broken one day. See, when your arms are broken, you, you, you can't do anything. You can't make money. When your arms are broken, you can't lift anything. 
When your arms are broken, you can't type on your computer. You can't open the door. You can't drive anywhere. You, you can't pick up anything. See, when your arms are broken, you're useless. And God says in verse 17 that one day he will make the wicked useless. That they will never do in hell what they did before on earth. But Yahweh, verse 17, he sustains the righteous. He is with the righteous. He encourages them day and night. He, he, encourage us, he encourages us in the valleys. And notice how in verse 17, David doesn't write, uh, God breaks the arm of the wicked, but Yahweh sustains the righteous. God's name is totally absent in the first clause of verse 17. And see, the absence of God's name with reference to the wicked is a rhetorical vice that you see often in the Psalms to signify that God is so far, he's so far away from the wicked in judgment that he's not even in the same sentence as the wicked. You see the same rhetorical advice in Psalm 1, chapter 6. Go to Psalm 1, 6 real quick. And, and look, look how it's phrased. Look how a verse a 6 is curiously phrased. Verse 6. Psalm 1. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, in the vicinity of the wicked, Yahweh's name, Yahweh's name is totally absent. He's so far away from the wicked, he is so distant, he's not even in the very sentence describing their predicament. But for us, look at verse 17. Yahweh sustains the righteous. Yahweh is so near to the righteous, he's so close to us that we know him on a first-name basis. If some of your translations have capital L-O-R-D, that's an English uh, translation for the Hebrew Yahweh. And Yahweh was God's personal name given to his people. God is so close to us that we know him on a first-name basis. That's how close he is to us. And this is why, beloved, this is why, brothers and sisters, that the righteous are content. This is why we are satisfied, because he is near to his people. Listen to me. Contentment is found only in the presence of God. Contentment is found only in the presence of God. The farther you stray from him, the less contentment you can have. In the presence of God is where contentment is found. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is where satisfaction and contentment is found. Years ago, I was a camp counselor for, these, for this Japanese kind of Christian camp. Those Japanese, those, they, they really know, they were strict, man. I was like, I was really, I was, it was an intense week. But I remember we had to talk to some, some students, and, and, and this kid wasn't really living for the Lord. And I said, you know what? When you, when you stray from God, when you, when you do your own thing, when you kind of just, just neglect him, what God does, he, he takes away his presence. He, he, he takes away that intimacy. And the young man, he just started tearing in his eyes. Like that was so precious to him that he was convicted to know that 
sin pushes God away. See, there, there will never be a number in your bank account that will ever be high enough to satisfy those empty parts of your heart. So stop going there to get filled up. Yahweh is with us, verse 17. And look at verse 18. Yahweh, he knows the days of the blameless. He knows our days. The word knows it means this intimate, personal understanding of something. It's a participle. It means that his intimate knowledge of what you go through day after day, it's habitual, it's constant, it's always there. See, when you're in a tough season of life, maybe you're the mother of young children, maybe you're in a work environment where the pressure is unrelentingly, unrelentingly intense, during those times, the hardest part of that isn't the hardest part of life when no one seems to understand what you're going through? Isn't that the hardest part? When no one seems like they understand what you're experiencing. You can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, day after day. And some people have the audacity to think that, that what you're going through is easy. Some people think, you're just, you're just being lazy. And you wish that somebody would just really know what you're going through and treat you accordingly. But often no one does, and you feel lonely. But if there was someone who did, what strength would it give to your soul, right? The, the load wouldn't be lighter, but you would be stronger, and that would make the bearing the burden easier. See, when we're known deeply by somebody, when we're treated according to the knowledge, that sustains us, doesn't it? Do you have somebody like that in your life? Well, if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then David says you do. Yahweh knows the days of the blameless. And, and we, our knowledge that he knows our days, our lives, that sustains us. That sustains the righteous. That gives us strength. That gives us power. That gives us endurance. He knows that you're feeling inside of your heart every second of the hour. And then he ministers to you accordingly. Those who establish an eternal perspective about life, verse 18 says, their inheritance will be forever. See, the little you have now, it's just the beginning. It's just the appetizer. Don't, don't look around, don't look at your life and say, that's it? This is all I got? For all the work I put in? No. An inheritance is coming. You have an inheritance waiting for you. See, the little you have now, it's just the beginning. You have an inheritance. Look at verse 18. That'll be forever. It'll be forever. The in, this, this inheritance refers to all the promises of God when Christ returns. You see, when you read your Bibles, we are like heirs of a wealthy landowner every time we come across the promises of God in Christ. Every promise given in Scripture is like the cornfield we, we ride through and say to, say to ourselves, that's going to be mine one day. Every promise in Scripture about Christ's return and what he will give his, his people is like, is like us. We're walking through the, the wheat fields and we say, that's going to be mine one day. See, every promise we come across in Scripture is like is us looking at the mansion on top of the hill and we say, you know what? That's going to be mine one day. 
But when the wicked, when the wicked look at those same promises, they're like, what? What are you talking about? I mean, it's nothing to them. They're blind to those promises. They're, they're so stuck in the here and now that this future inheritance, it sounds like, like you're talking about aliens. It's like you're talking about Bigfoot. I was recently sharing with a, a, a gentleman we met on, on the campus of GMU, and, and he was a, a transgender, he said, and he was saying, man, the church, it's, they're just, why, why, why are they not letting people in the church? They're kicking out all these people who are suffering and, and, and hurting. And I said, it's not that we're, I said to him, it's not that we're kicking people out. It's that we want them to go to heaven. And his response to me was like, what? Heaven? What are you talking about? What is that? See, this is the, this is the severity of a temporary perspective on life. We need to have eternal perspectives, an eternal mindset. You see, the, this, this contentment, however, this contentment, however, uh, that, the, that an eternal perspective produces in our hearts, it doesn't exempt us from evil circumstances, according to verse 19. God says, they will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and the days of famine they will be satisfied. You see, notice how it, how it says that we're not going to be spared from the time of evil. Notice how it says, we're not going to be, be somehow the days of famine that comes from everybody else. We're going to go through that too. That's going to come to us. See, the wrath that is being poured out on the world as we speak is, is poured out indiscriminately. We're not spared from plagues and hurricanes. We're not spared from the effects of moral degeneracy in our society. Bad things happen to Christians. We experience disappointment. We suffer through tragedies. People betray us. Our hearts get broken. But, God says, we can grow, we can go through the time of evil unashamed. God says, in the days of famine, we can go through the famine being satisfied. Isn't that a, almost sounds like a contradiction? Like I'm hungry, it's a famine, I don't have a lot of food, but God says you can be satisfied. You can be content with the presence and promise of God. We can endure all the setbacks of life with inward contentment and satisfaction if, however, we submit our wills to God's will. Yes, we are called to submit to God's moral, moral will revealed in the commands of the New Testament, New Testament, but we're also expected to submit to God's sovereign will over our lives. And, and this is how we submit our wills to God's sovereign will in our circumstances. We refuse to complain and murmur and grumble. We fuse our wills into God's will by continuing to trust and obey and love God when all our dreams are dashed by the providence of God. Brothers and sisters, if God is perfectly satisfied with his sovereign will over my life through the circumstances I live in, then who am I not to be satisfied with those same circumstances? 
if he's okay with my circumstances, then we need to be okay with those circumstances, right? The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs put it this way, Now then, if God's will, that's God's sovereign will, now then, if God's will is satisfied, then I am satisfied. For I have no will of my own. It is melted into the will of God. That is the excellence of grace. Grace does not only subject the will to God, but it melts the will into God's will. So that they are now but one will. What a sweet satisfaction the soul must have in this condition when all is made over to God. Is your will melted into God's will? Is your will fused into God's will? That will give you satisfaction. That will give you contentment. But why? Why? Why, why, would, why would that give us satisfaction? Jeremiah Burroughs says it's because when you're content in this way, when you're satisfied by God's sovereign will, even though you're not getting what you want, you are being taught the lesson that your good is more in God than in yourself. See, the satisfaction, the contentment that comes from not wanting, from not getting what you want in life in exchange for submitting without complaint to God's sovereign will in your circumstances is the knowledge that, quote, the good of my life and comforts and my happiness and my glory and my riches are more in God than in myself. See, God is more glorified in your contentment when you don't get what you want than when, than when you do get what you want. Because it proves, without a doubt, that God is more important than what you want from Him. Establish an eternal perspective in your temporary setbacks and let that eternal perspective give you deep contentment and satisfaction within yourself. Do you delight in God more than you do your own pursuits and desires and dreams? Go back to verse 4. Look what, look what David said. He said this, Delight yourself in Yahweh, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When you delight yourself in God more than you do in your personal circumstances, according to verse 4, there is this exponential cascading effect. Because the more you delight yourself in God, the more desires God gives you for himself. And then he keeps satisfying those desires in himself. And that satisfaction then only goes deeper and deeper and wider and wider because Christ is the infinite fountain of delight and contentment. Christ is the infinite fountain of delight and contentment. He never stops giving in his word. He never stops giving in prayer. My son likes Pokemon cards. He has about a million of them in his house. He buys the pack. And that satisfaction lasts for about five minutes until he wants another one. 
and that Pokemon, those Pokemon cards are like all the toys we want. It's like all the things, all the comforts of life we want. We have our own Pokemon cards. Look at, look, listen to Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy mine and will, my, wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight your soul in riches. Incline your ear and come to me. Jeremiah 2 verse 13 says that when you try to find contentment outside of Christ, you commit two evils. Jeremiah says, for my people have done two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. These are the two evils. It's first you turn away from God himself for your contentment, who is the fountain of living water. That is the dumbest thing you could possibly do. The second evil thing is that you try to replace him for an idol, a broken cistern, a a container of water that can hold no water. It can contain no, it can give you no real satisfaction for your souls. The little that we have is just the beginning. We have an inheritance that will last forever to look forward to. But the wicked, their abundance, what will happen to that? Verse 20. But the wicked will perish. And the enemies of Yahweh will be like the glory of the pastors. They vanish in smoke. They vanish away. See, the abundance of the wicked that they enjoy today, that's all they get. That's all. No more after that. The little we have, it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning of an internal heritance. Sometimes you ever watch those TikTok videos and somebody's walking through a nice uh, big house or they're showing these nice luxury cars. You don't have to be envious of that. You don't have to be jealous of that. You just tell yourself, that's all you get. Get it for a short time. Charles Spurgeon said, commenting on verse 20, A puff is the end of all their puffing. Their fuming ends in smoke. They made themselves fat and perished in their own grease. Consumers of the good they tried to be and consume they shall be. You don't need to be jealous of that. Paul says in Philippians 4, 11, 13, not that I speak from one, for I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. According to these two verses, Paul says that contentment is something that you need to learn. It it, it isn't instantaneous. It's a secret. It's a mystery that needs to be learned. You need to be instructed about contentment and satisfaction. And this psalm, for some of this morning, teaches us the first lesson about this contentment. 
Contentment begins by establishing an eternal mindset, an eternal perspective. Our lives on this earth is just the beginning. You may think you just have a little, but it's just the beginning of a very long and bright future. So be fully content with the God who sent His Son to die for you.